0: Thank you, Pastor Kirkwood. I love that song. Um, you know, the the psalmist said that uh, in your presence there's fullness of joy. And there's something about just getting in God's presence and worshiping Him and praising Him for who He is. That man, that's where joy is found. It's in His presence. So, thank you, Pastor. Uh, I want to read you a couple of verses, and then we'll continue in our study. First John chapter two. I'll just read it to you real quick. Verses 15 and 16, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of, our, of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. And we're going to talk about a group of people tonight that they wanted the will of God to be done in the church. And they saw the world creeping into the church, and they wanted to purify the church from the world. And it is a fascinating study. This is a really interesting, um, I think every era of church history is interesting, okay? But some are more interesting than others. So I hope that you will enjoy this. And I hope you've enjoyed this study. You know, when you understand things, the history of things, you can, you can interact with people better. It gives you confidence because you know, oh, I understand where that came from. I understand why they think that way. And so I hope this has been helpful for you. Tonight, we'll talk about where the Baptists came from. We're going to look at the very first Baptist church, and it didn't develop in America. Uh, I'll tell you. I'll tell you where. Some of you probably already know, but we'll talk about that. A few years ago, Walter and Ennis were on a vacation in Brazil. Now, they were originally from Argentina. They traveled over to Brazil, and this was going to be a great vacation for them, and um, everything seemed to be going according to plan, and, but on their way home, they made a stop for, to get some gas. Well, Ennis, um, the wife, was asleep in the back seat, and their 14-year-old son was sitting up front, and Walter was driving. So he pulled over to get some gas, and while he was filling up, apparently Ennis slipped out of the back seat and went into the, the gas station. Well, Walter had no idea, and uh, the 14-year-old was you know, on his cell phone, so he's busy. He wasn't paying attention. And so Walter fills up the car, jumps back in the car, and takes off. Well, Ennis is in the gas station. So she comes out, and Walter and, and her son are gone. And so she starts panicking, and is crying, and is upset, and is talking to the manager. And the manager thinks, well, surely this is a joke, or he's just gone. He's going to come right back. And, uh, but he realized this was serious. She was, she was in a real panic. She, didn't ha- she had no documents. She had no money. She didn't have anything. She's trying to, I guess she had a cell phone. So she tried to call her husband. You know, there's, there's not good coverage. She can't get in touch with him. So here she is in the middle of Brazil. She's from Argentina. She ends up going to the police station. And finally, about two hours later, here comes her husband pulling up. Now, would you love to just be a fly on the wall in the car when he realized, like, I don't know if he looked in the rearview mirror when he realized, like, my wife is not in the car and I'm in big, big trouble. And so, but they were re- reunited a couple of, of hours later. But Ennis got left behind. And tonight we're going to look at a group of people that got left behind. The church just was moving one direction. They wanted to go another direction, and they got left behind. And they were faced with a decision do we stay in the church or do we separate from the church? And so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Now, when I was with you, I guess, a number of weeks ago, we talked about the English Reformation. We looked at how England separated from the Roman Catholic Church, and that officially happened in in the year 1534. It's called the Act of Supremacy. So when England declared, we're no longer under the Pope, we are our own church. And so we talked about the development of Anglicanism. It's also called the established church or the state church. All those are used synonymously to talk about the, the church in England. And so we talked about the different rulers that, um, that England had. They had uh, King Henry VIII, of course, and then after him, his son, Edward VI, was the king for a short period of time. He died very young, and then, um, then Queen Mary took over. And remember, Mary's name is called Bloody Mary, because do you remember how many, how many Protestants she killed during that time? It was about 300 about 300 Protestants she had killed in just about a five-year period. She was, was the queen from 1553 to 1558. She died on November 17th, 1558. Now, uh, Mary, she married a guy named Philip II of Spain in July of 1554. However, they didn't have children. So when she died, she didn't have an heir to pass the rule onto. So Mary's half-sister, Elizabeth, who was the last remaining child of King Henry, now she becomes queen. And so Elizabeth was, her, was Mary's half-sister. Remember, Henry had six, six wives, so uh, she, she probably had a lot of half-sisters but um, or half-siblings. But uh, Elizabeth was um, uh, King Henry and Anne Boleyn's daughter. And so and the, the fact that she was even alive was really purely political because uh, Philip wanted they wanted to, to kill Elizabeth, and so someone else would inherit the throne. However, they thought, well, if we, if we kill her, um, Philip of Spain, or, or um, Mary, Queen of Scots, who was also the wife of, um, the, of someone connected in France, then he would, she would assume the throne, and now England would be connected with Scotland and France. And you could, Just to think if that would have happened. England, Scotland, and France would have all been united. And so they left Elizabeth alive, and Elizabeth comes to the throne, and here she is now. In 1558, she's Queen of England. Now, she would would live until the year 1603, so she had a very long reign as queen. Now, her task was to unite a country. This country had been gone gone back and forth uh, religiously. You had King Henry had separated the church, then Edward came in, and he really pushed it toward protestantism. And then Mary came in and pulled it back toward Catholicism. And now here, here is Elizabeth. She wanted to have a middle of the road policy so that Roman Catholics could be happy and Protestants could be happy. No extremes, just kind of keep it right in the middle. All right. Just don't, don't swerve too far either way. Just keep it right in the middle. That, that's what she wanted to do. Elizabeth had trained under a bishop named, named John Hooper. He was an Anglican bishop, Protestant reformer, He he supported the English Reformation. He was executed and burned for heresy. So she had learned under a Protestant. However, she did not believe in Protestant extremism. She she was a moderate. Let's just keep it in the middle. And so the Pope at the time of Elizabeth's Ascension was Paul IV. He was ready to declare Elizabeth as legitimate daughter of Henry VIII and, and valid queen if she would remain loyal to Rome. And Elizabeth said, I don't want to be loyal to Rome. So she didn't even let the Pope know that she had become queen. And so she was that intent on separating England from any um, influence from Rome. She felt her father had every right to declare himself as head of the church and to separate from Rome. And so um, that that was her stance. So uh, Parliament in 1559 passed legislation that recognized Elizabeth as the supreme head of the church, the supreme governor of the church. They gave her more Uh, power and authority really than her dad had and so um, so here she goes and kind of her middle of the road policy her first archbishop was a guy named Matthew Parker this was a perfect role for Matthew because he had he he had he he could enforce that middle of the road policy he had been ordained under Edward which he was a Protestant but he had also conformed outwardly to the Catholic Church under Mary so he knew how to do both as well so this was perfect for him So under Elizabeth, a new edition, I'm just giving you background here. We'll we'll get somewhere. A new edition of the Book of Common Prayer was published. It it was this was the official liturgy for the the, the Anglican church. Uh, What they tried to do in this book of common prayer was accommodate both parties. They wanted to accommodate the, the the, the, the people that believe the way we do about the Lord's Supper, that it's just a memorial. It's not, it's not literally the body and blood of Jesus. They wanted to keep them happy, and they wanted to keep other people, the Roman Catholics, happy, and they wanted to keep the, the um, Lutherans happy and the Calvinists happy. So they had all this different terminology in there. So this group would be happy, and this group would be happy. And so an act of uniformity was passed that, that made, required all ministers to use this prayer book, the Book of Common Prayer. And so the most zealous and committed Roman Catholics said, we can't do this because it prohibits Latin mass, monasteries are not mentioned, a celibate priesthood. We, 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 we can't do this. And so um, Elizabeth said, well, that's fine. She'd begin filling these open positions with Protestants. And so slowly over time, England's becoming filled with more and more Protestant ministers. Um, a lot of them were coming from Oxford and Cambridge. And so um, over time, it's becoming a, a solidly Protestant country. However, many of the Protestants who had left England under Queen Mary, remember, she was killing Protestants. So because of that, many of them fled and went to the continent of Europe. When they came back under Elizabeth, they had all these aspirations. They were zealous. They thought, man, it it is time now to reform the church. We've been on the continent. We've been influenced by Luther. We've been influenced by Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli. Man, we are ready. We see things in the church that are not right we need to reform the church. So they were fired up, they were excited, they were zealous, and Elizabeth would have none of it. She said, I, I don't want extremism, I just want you to stay in the middle of the road and keep everybody happy. And so this group that came back, <clears throat> along with some others, they, along with some university graduates who were really wanted to, they were zealous as well, they wanted to reform the church, they became called Puritans because they wanted to purify the church. They were inside the established church, the Anglican Church, and they wanted to purify the church. They were well educated. Uh, they knew their doctrine well, and they just wanted to see Roman Catholicism put out of the church. And so, um, originally, the term Puritan was really a negative one. It was used by their enemies. You know, a bunch of Puritans. You know, you can just see how that would just. It was as a way to put people down. But the Puritans would refer to themselves as professors. Or the Godly. you know, can you imagine just talking to yourself like, well, I'm pretty godly. you know that's, they, would, they would refer themselves as the professors or the godly. And so uh, the most common characteristic of the Puritans was the belief that the Church of England had not been satisfactorily purged from the beliefs of, and worship of Roman Catholicism. They were frustrated with Anglican liturgy. they had all these prayers that were being recited, and they just thought, you know, these are just empty prayers or just, it's just a ritual, just ritual. There's no heart. Nobody's really talking to God. They believe that God is gonna bring salvation to souls through preaching. They thought, man, we've gotta preach the gospel. We don't need to just waste our time with all this meaningless liturgy. Let's, let's put people in the, in the, in the pulpit who, who love God, who wanna share his word and see people saved. They wanted people to have access to the Bible in their own language. And so Puritans would get irritated because in, they, would, they would do um, the Lord's Supper and, and people would kneel before the altar as if Christ were being re-sacrificed again. And then that irritated them. They were irritated that the, the, the priests wore these robes and they, they were called vestments and that irritated them. They, they were frustrated by all these different things, the use of wafer bread at communion, even the use of the term priest and the subordinate place of the sermon. All this was irritating to the, to the Puritans. One clergyman who later founded Connecticut said it this way, Henry VIII's mistake was that he cut off the head of popery, but he left the body of it yet within his realm. All he did really was just separate England from Rome and left everything else in place. So you had all these traditions, all this Roman Catholicism Catholicism still filled the churches. The liturgy, all, all of that, most of that, some of that had been changed. Much of that, though, was still in place. And so you had this group of Puritans who said, Man, we, we want to we transform the church, and we want to transform our communities. We want to see people saved. We want the churches to be filled with the gospel being preached. And so they focused on four major areas. Doctrine, ceremonial practices, a preaching ministry, and opposition to Roman Catholic power. That's where they focused their attention. They believed in the inerrancy of Scripture. The Puritans did. They believed the Bible shaped all of their theology. And... Um, they were very able theologians. Most of them were Calvinists. They had been influenced by John Calvin's teaching in Europe. And so they, they believed in predestination. They believed um, <coughs> particularly in Calvin's uh, Presbyterian government. They were, they were getting irritated at the way the bishops and archdeacons and all of these different titles. And uh, they felt like, you know, you've got bishops that are making decisions for a whole city um, shouldn't the congregation make their own, their own decision for that particular church? So they, began, they were frustrated This the way the church was being run. And so Calvin had noticed that the Scriptures, or he had written that the Scriptures uses, uses the term bishops, presbyters, and, or elders, and pastors as synonymous. And he thought, you know, Puritans began to think, you know, the, the church should be led by its own congregation, not by a bishop, someone who's not even in the church. It just doesn't make sense. And so uh, churches should be able to elect their own pastors. It shouldn't be dictated to them from someone outside the church. All these things were developing in the 1500s. And so a man named Thomas Cartwright, he was a professor of divinity at Cambridge University, he argued that the English model of church government was not found in the Bible. He said, I don't see this in the New Testament. He believed each congregation should elect its own pastor and the offices of archbishops and archdeacons should be abolished because it's not found in the Bible. And so later that year, he was blessed by being suspended from his position at the University of Cambridge for his radical views. He was really arguing for a Presbyterian form of government, not that they would be Presbyterians, but that that form of government would be instituted in the churches. Two years later, two London ministers published what was called an admonition to parliament, which they condemned the existing church government system for the different positions, some of which we've talked about already. These ministers believe that um, the, all these positions, archbishop, they're not found in Scripture. And so um, during the time of King Henry VIII, the Church of England was organized into twenty-five or t- sorry, 27 different areas, uh, a, a diocese, 27 different dioceses. Each diocese had a bishop at its head. And all of those bishops reported to two archbishops. You had an archbishop of York in the north and an archbishop of Canterbury in the south. Uh, Even though York and Canterbury were officially equal, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury had the upper hand because he was closer to London, the influence of government and power, and he was also closer to the universities of Oxford and Cambridge. So whoever was was in that chair at Canterbury really was the leader of the Anglican church, (laughs) practically speaking. And so... um, the, uh, the Puritans would have none of it. They, didn't, they, they were existing within that system, but they did not want that to continue. So initially, Elizabeth was tolerant of the Puritans. There were many bishops who, uh, under her who were sympathetic toward the Puritans. However, by the mid-1570s and 1580s, things began to change. The Puritans began meeting, and uh, a group of Puritan clergy would come together, and they called these meetings prophesyings. And it, it was really just a preaching meeting. The, the Puritan clergy would get up and preach to each other, and many of them had not been university trained, and so they would get up just as a way to practice, as a way to get better, and they would receive feedback and coaching from more seasoned ministers in the midst. And occasionally, laity would come to these meetings. So these went on for a while. The bishops let them, they, you know, they, 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 let, they let it go, uh, but the queen found out what was happening. And I don't know why, but she didn't like, she didn't value preaching as much as the Puritans did. And so she, she, she her uh, Archbishop of Canterbury at the time was a man named Edmund Grindel, And so she told Edmund, we need to put a stop to these prophesyings. And he said, um, well, I'm going to write you, he wrote her a 6,000 word defense of these meetings and why they should exist and why they should let them happen. But there was one line that really sealed his fate. This is what he said. Bear with me, I beseech you, madam, if I choose rather to offend your earthly majesty than to, to offend the heavenly majesty of God. Well, she didn't receive that very well. And so Grendel's career was over just like that. He was out and uh, she said, well, I'll just put a stop to this myself. She sent out a circular letter and now all the prophesying had to stop. They, they had to obey the government. And so Grendel's career was over. He died in 1583 blind and in in bad health. But he had stood up for what he felt was right. And in the 1580s, many of the queen's bishops died and were were replaced by anti-Puritan bishops. So the tide is beginning to turn a little bit. The Puritans once were um, uh, tolerated. They had a sympathetic ear. Now they're getting anti-Puritan bishops, and they can't do their prophesying meetings and so now they began to face a predicament. Are they going to continue to submit to Queen Elizabeth and her rules, or should they consider another option? And so um, they, they didn't like the, the governing system of the Anglican Church. All these things were going on. Well, in 1583, John Whitgift became the new Archbishop of Canterbury, and he saw the Puritans as rebels who needed to be forced to get back in line with the Church of England's teaching. So he believed the book of common prayer contained nothing contrary to God's word, and it had to be enforced. So if you were a minister in the Church of England, you had to go by this book. That means you had to do Lord's Supper, just as it said. You had to do the prayers, just as it said. This was your guidebook. And so they began enforcing that. Now, before that, the Puritans had been ignoring parts of it. They said, well, we're going we're gonna to take that out, and we're just going to preach, we're going, to, we're going to do the Lord's Supper the way we want to do the Lord's Supper. They, they, were, they were modified. They stayed within the church officially, but they modified it to fit what they liked. They valued preaching. And so, uh, now, preaching in those days was really a source of, it, besides preaching the gospel, it was a way to communicate news. This was, you know, instead of the newspaper, people would get their news from sermons. They would get public entertainment from sermons. And so the, the, the Puritans really valued the, the, the place of the sermon in the, the local church. And so um, in light of this demand now by the new archbishop, they were faced with a choice. Would they violate their conscience and sign the article that the archbishop had put in church? Uh, or would they leave the church that they had fought so hard to purify? It was, it was quite a dilemma. And so it's estimated about that time that three or 400 ministers refused to sign the archbishop's ultimatum, and uh, they were excluded from their ministries. However, the, the, the laity in the churches appealed, they raised a fuss about it, and so the archbishop backed off, he compromised with them, um, but still, it, things were not, the, were not the way Puritans wanted them. And so uh, the, the, the good news was, Puritans began receiving assistance from Oxford and Cambridge, There's a college at Cambridge called Emanuel College. It was set up to to train preachers. And so they began cranking out and producing all these preachers of the gospel and who could fill the pulpits in England. And so by the time Elizabeth died in 1603, there had been significant progress uh, made in the transforming of the Church of England. You had over half the pulpits in England's Anglican churches were filled with educated preachers. Many of them were Puritans. In 1603, England—it was clearly a Protestant nation, even though it was not nearly as reformed as what the Protest, as what the Puritans would want. But in Elizabeth's mind, her middle-of-the-road, moderate policy had won the day because it had avoided any type of religious war. It had kept the peace, and uh, there had been no real extremes. And so, man, in her mind, it was—it was a win. Things had gone really well. And so, Elizabeth, though did not leave an heir to the throne, but she did determine who her successor would be. His name was James. He would be James I. James was the son of Mary Stuart, who was a, he was already king of Scotland at the time. Now the Puritans thought this is a great thing, because Scotland, if you know history, was Presbyterian. okay? So they thought, man, he's coming in here. He's Presbyterian. This is going to be great for us. Even though they viewed him as a foreigner, because he was coming from up north in Scotland. And they thought, man, we're going to be able now to assert ourselves and purify this church that we've wanted to for so long. So they presented uh, King James I with something called a mill- millinery petition. The military petition had about 800 uh, supporters, Puritan supporters, and it was an appeal to him. And so James said, okay, well, let's talk about it. So they called uh, James called the, the Hampton Court Conference. And at the Hampton Court Conference, they met January 1604. It was a three-day conference. It was a discussion on the state of the church between the king and some of the church leaders, some of whom were Puritans. And so the Puritans asked that the church be be purged of practices they considered at odds with God's Word, like certain things with liturgy, regulation concerning ministers, and reform of church discipline. They just wanted simple obedience to the New Testament, Let's don't go by the book of common prayer. Can we just stick to the Bible? Can we just, all these written prayers, or they're not sincere, and um, they're not found in the Bible. And so they thought, man, this is going to go over really well. I mean, this, this is our moment. Uh, but King James I did not receive it very well. In fact, he, he rejected many of their, their requests. But you know the one that he did say yes to was a new translation of the, the English Bible which we know is the King James Bible in 1611. is that interesting? That's why it's called the King James Bible. He granted their request. It's, it's known as the authorized version or the King James Bible. So now you know a little bit of the history behind that. And so even though he was initially sympathetic to the Puritan movement, his bishops wanted to smother the movement. And instead of uh, relief, the Puritans endured more persecution. So just you, you put yourself in their shoes for a minute and think they've been. I mean, if you were an older person, you've endured this now for decades. You thought, "Man, I, lights at the end of the tunnel's coming." Now we're finally going to get to have the church that we want, and uh, he's rejected our request. Now, so what? What are we going to do? Um, you know, it was purifying the Anglican Church at that point was definitely an uphill battle. Uh, but some some stuck to it, and some did not. And here's where it gets really interesting. So a small group of individuals. Said, you know what? This is pointless. We we can't just keep trying to do this. We're not getting anywhere. They're not listening to us. And so they determined the only way we're gonna we're gonna uh, reform the church is to separate from the church. And so they began. They separated from the Church of England and they began holding their own meetings. And this group uh, earned the name separatist. Separatists. So during Queen Elizabeth's reign, this group was small. Um, but it grew in numbers and impact over the next 50 years following her death. Within this group of separatists would emerge the denominations we now know as Congregationalists, especially if you're from the Northeast, you're, from, you're familiar with Congregationalists, and the Baptist would, would come from this. See, this is where it gets, it gets interesting. Separatism first appeared in England as early as 1567. The most well-known early separatists were Robert Brown and Robert Harrison. Brown concluded that the Church of England was not a true Christian church and could not be reformed. He proposed that there should be a gathered community of people who joined together freely and were bound together by covenant. Local congregations should elect their own ministers, not be told who who is coming. And so in 1581, Brown and Harrison formed a separatist church in Norwich and eventually immigrated to the Netherlands where they established a new separatist church. Um, however, the Church of England under Elizabeth, because this was not part of her middle-of-the-road policy, they did not approve. And so those two individuals were arrested in, Lo- in London in 1586 for establishing a separatist church and stayed in prison for seven years. It's amazing. They continued, however, producing separatist literature while in prison, while in prison and eventually they were executed. Because of persecution, many separatists chose to leave England. And by the end of Elizabeth's reign, which was 1603, the future of separatism was uncertain. But time would reveal that they would play a major role in the 17th century. So back to James I. Under James I, the separatist movement began to grow and take shape. In the late 1500s, there was a man named John Smith. He spelled his last name S M Y T H, John Smith. He went to Christ College school at Cambridge University. After he finished his education, he grew up, he was, he was in the Anglican church. He, he became a lecturer in the city of Lincoln. And he, he opposed Roman Catholicism, but he was he was an Anglican clergyman. But he began reading his Bible and began really studying um, scripture, talking with friends about the nature of the church. And so uh, in light of everything that was going on with King James I, his opposition to the Puritans, by 1607, Smith had arrived at the separatist position, thought, well, if I'm going to be a clergyman, I think the only way I can do it is by being a separatist. I can't stay in the Church of England. And so he and some others were convinced that the Church of England had a false worship and a false ministry. It could not be reformed. True believers in Christ had no option but to separate from it. So by 1609, Smith concluded that the church should be built on the basis of believer's baptism. He would read the New Testament, and especially the book of Acts, and would see that churches were started where people were saved. The gospel would be preached, people were saved, they were baptized, and boom, you've got a church. And so he thought, you know, I think that's how we should build churches. I think people should get saved, get baptized, and then you have a church. And so what he did in either 1608 or 1609, Smith baptized himself. He got water and just, he baptized himself. And and thirty six others and formed the first English Baptist church. Though it was not in England, it was in anybody know where it was. It was in Amsterdam. The first English Baptist church was in Amsterdam. Interesting. And so in sixteen eleven or twelve, this congregation moved to England. Although they didn't have John Smith because he died in sixteen twelve. And so, but now you've got the first Baptist church it was not called first baptist church but the first baptist church in in england on english soil and they were they were they were doing believers baptism and the pastor was john merton john merton was the pastor there in, in, uh, at, the, at the first at the, the baptist church there they were known as general baptist because they believed in the general atonement that christ died for all people now years later the the particular baptist They believed Jesus only died for the elect. They emerged in England in 1638. So you have the general Baptists and you have the particular Baptists. See, Baptists have been fighting just all the way from the beginning, you know? Those are the two streams of Baptists. And so you have people on on both sides. Um, And soon after the first general Baptist congregation was founded on English soil, another Protestant denomination developed. Three men Henry Jacob, William Ames, and William Bradshaw form the independent or congregational position from which we get the modern congregationalism denomination. So there, sometimes you see them called independents or sometimes they're called congregationalists. The main difference between them and Baptists is congregationalists practice infant baptism. That's, that's how you know the, the, the difference. The church polity, church government is really essentially the same, but one does infant baptism and, and Baptists do not. That's, that's how you distinguish them. So the Puritans who, were, who remained in the Church of England, so now you have Puritans and now you have separatists. The Puritans remained in the Church of England to purify the church. The separatists said, forget it, we're just going to start our own church. So um, around the year 1600, for those who remained in the church, the Puritans, they said, you know what, let's just forget about trying to reform the church, the way the church is governed. Let's just focus more on developing our theology and our, our walk with God. And so the Puritans were really first and foremost students of the Bible. They said, this is the inspired Word of God, and we we need to study it better. So they wanted to properly interpret the Bible and explain it to their fellow Englishmen. One particular practice, if you've ever read anything about the Puritans, you've probably read this about them. One particular practice that was important to them was their proper observance of the Lord's Day. It's called the doctrine of the Sabbath or Sabbatarianism, sometimes it's called you'll recall that the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. And uh, for the Puritans, the Sabbath was more than part of the Ten Commandments. See, if you only, if you only view the Sabbath as part of the Ten Commandments, then you're not going to do it because you're going to say, well, those have been fulfilled. We're not under the law. I don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to practice the Sabbath. But they viewed the Sabbath as going back to creation because it was connected to God's work of creation. Remember Genesis 2, 3, it says, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And so the Puritans said this practicing a Sabbath or observing a Sabbath, that replies to everybody because it goes all the way back to creation. So it was before the law was even given. And so this is what Matthew Henry said about the Puritan Sabbath. He said, God designed the Sabbath to be an advantage to us. It's not a burden, it's an advantage. So, and so we must make and improve it. He had much more regard for our souls. The Sabbath was made a day of rest, only in order to its being a day of holy work, a day of communion with God, a day of praise and thanksgiving. And the rest from worldly business is therefore necessary that we may closely apply ourselves to this work and spend the whole time in it, public and private. And so the Sabbath is kept holy from resting from worldly business and focusing only on heavenly business. So the Sabbath was not observed from them just by taking a nap, okay? That's some, sometimes we, we think like, oh, I'm going to observe the Sabbath. I'm taking a nap and watching football. That, that's, that was not the Sabbath for them. For them, the Sabbath was, no, I've got more time to serve God. I've got more time to be in the word. I've got more time to spend leading my family in devotions and, and pointing them closer to God. One writer commented about the Sabbath. He said, Hail thou that art highly favored of God. Talking about the Sabbath day. Thou golden spot of the week. Thou market day of souls. I love that phrase. Market day of souls. Thou daybreak of eternal brightness. Thou queen of days. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among days. It was the one day a week where the soul would feast on God and was rejuvenated. Exodus 31, 17 said, It is a sign forever, God said, between me and the people of Israel, talking about the Sabbath, that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Isn't that interesting? God was refreshed on the Sabbath. It's interesting. I love the Sabbath, personally. Okay, so I I, I get a little excited about this. Now, in order to have an effective Sabbath day, first, proper proper preparation must be made. This is what, what one writer said, the battle for our Sundays is usually won or lost on the foregoing Saturday night. Yeah, that's right, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Going to ball games, all these other things are fun, but it can hurt you Saturday, Sunday morning, can it? He said, the battle is won on Saturday night when time should be set aside for self-examination, confession, and prayer for the coming day. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, a little convicting, too, isn't it? English Puritan Richard Baxter's Young, Pe- Young, Young People's Fellowship, they used to spend three hours each Saturday evening preparing together for the Sabbath. Uh, public worship must be central. Puritan services might last for two or three hours. Now, what would you think? You showed up here for two or three hours. And, and you know, they had little sympathy for those that complained. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you about the Puritans. Third, the family must function as a religious unit on the Lord's Day. The the head of the house, the spiritual leader of the home, was expected to lead his family in a devotion and make sure they go to church together. Um, All this, to me, is just fascinating. Um, They they had a lot to say about the Sabbath. Now, on other theological issues, the Puritans believed that man was created in the image of God, uh, but because of his sin became totally depraved. That is, every part of his soul and body was infected with sin. The sin spread to every person and uh, eternally separated every person from God. But in God, in his mercy, chose to save some, according to the Puritans. Uh, that's where their Calvinism come, uh, influence comes in. Uh, but they didn't estimate how many God would save. But they just said, you know, there's, there's comforting evidence that God was filled with love and that he would save some. And so, um, Now, meanwhile, the Anglican church was moving in the opposite direction. They, they didn't buy into the, the Calvinist belief. They said, you know, no. Uh, they emphasized the ability of man. And so when King James died, his son Charles assumed the throne. This was in 1625. And he supported the Arminian views instead of Calvinist views. And so, um, and so prominent Anglican leaders did as well. And so in addition, Charles I had married a French Catholic princess, and she was given the right to have open Catholic worship at the court. And so the Puritans are seeing all this develop in front of their eyes. And so now Catholicism is coming back now and into the middle of things. And they're thinking, what are we going to do? Um, they love the Sabbath, as we just talked about. They emphasize that. But sports and other recreation activities, which the Puritans sought to ban on Sunday, were now allowed by royal authority. And King James, or In 1618, King James I issued the Book of Sports, which listed the sports and recreation activities that were allowed on Sundays. Now listen to this. He required every clergyman to announce from the pulpit the programs available for Sunday entertainment to the congregation. Can you imagine that? What if they just preached on the Sabbath, and then he has to get up there and go, by the way, you can go over so until 2 o'clock and play soccer. Then you can go here. It just didn't make any sense. It totally went against what con- their conscience, their convictions. And uh, so th- this was a real tension. And so they were, they were in the midst of a severe trial. So now you have this theological divide going on between the Anglican leaders and the Puritans. And so they thought, man, if we're going to survive this, we're going to have to adopt a new approach. And under Charles I, the teaching of predestination was forbidden at Cambridge in 1626 and at Oxford in 1628. And so they went from having a sympathetic supporter under Elizabeth to now hardly getting hurt at all under James I and Charles I, and so England's drifting back into Catholicism, and so um, <clears throat> some decided to make a radical move. They said, well, so, you know, we, we've got to try something different here, so immigration became an, object, became an option, and um, of course, it had been an option before under, under Queen Mary, but now they thought, well, we, I think we're just going to have to get out of here, and so there, were, there was an urgency for some to consider immigrating, And thankfully, there was a company there to help them do that. The Dorchester Company was an organization formed in 1623. They wanted to profit from the development of the coastal fisheries on North America. And so they would take trips over to North America and try to establish these these fishing uh, villages, and uh, they needed manpower to do that. So some of these Puritans would hop on those voyages and go over there. Now, some of it, it could have been for economic reasons, I'm sure. But some of them, they viewed it as the mission field. We're going to go there and try to convert the Indians. And so um, all this is going on. Now, when King Charles I dissolved Parliament in 1629, he, he dissolved Parliament and said, I'm going to make all the decisions from now on. Okay, that, that's what King Charles I did. And so after that, they thought, well, all hope is lost. He's not going to listen to us. You know, there is no Parliament to appeal to and, uh, you know, there's the Thirty Years' War was in Germany. He didn't offer to help the Protestants in that, so we we just we we it's time to move on. And so the grass began to look really green across the Atlantic. And so in a sermon called "A Model of Christian Charity" by John Winthrop to his fellow passengers as they traveled to Massachusetts in 1630, he said they had entered into a covenant with God and with each other as they headed to the new land. They were to sacrifice individual interests for the common good. And we're to live model Christian lives. This is what John Winthrop said. You've, you've heard this. We shall be as a city upon a hill. Talking about the new Puritan establishment in, in North America. The eyes of all people are upon us. People would seek to emulate them. Another writer recorded that the purpose of the colony was to be set as lights upon a hill, more obvious than the highest mountain in the world. So the Puritan just felt like, hey, God's closing the door here in England. We're just going to go to North America. And we'll, we'll, we'll set up our shop there and we'll begin to evangelize and win people to Christ there. And so in August of 26, 1629, 12 individuals signed the Cambridge Agreement in which they pledged themselves to immigrate to New England by the following year. And then the Cambridge Agreement eventually led to the founding of Boston, Massachusetts. Isn't all this interesting? See, this is just fascinating. Just You see church and civil history just really going together there. In the 1630s alone, 21,000 Puritans made the migration from England to North America. Once in the new land, the Puritans organized churches according to to congregational polity, meaning, meaning that each church could now select its own religious leaders. They finally had the freedom to seek God and allow him to lead their churches. Let me give you just a few application points based on what we learned from the Puritans tonight. First, Be careful that your walk with God does not become routine. Be careful that your walk with God does not become routine. Church services under Queen Elizabeth, as as we read, they were often routine. Same prayers, just read the prayer, not really interacting with God. I mean, if you looked from the outside, people were going through the motions. Some of it looked pretty good. Some of it probably sounded good. But inside, it was empty. It was ritualistic. And so I would just encourage you, you know, I, I like routines as well, but sometimes we can, get in, we can get in a rut. We get in a routine spiritually, don't we? And we need to mix it up. We need to try something different. I walk with God. Maybe it's reading a new translation of the Bible. Maybe it's going on a mission trip. Maybe it's going next door to my neighbor. I need to get to know him a little better so I can share Christ with him. Or man, instead of watching TV, maybe I'm going to listen to a sermon, listen to some praise music. I, I'm going to mix it up because you and I can get, we just can get where we just go through the motions sometimes, right? We're not really interacting with God. We're just, well, wow, that's what I'm supposed to do, and so uh, that's what I'm going to do. Next, consider practicing a weekly Sabbath. Take one day out of seven and pull away, if you can. I know, somebody, I know you're busy. Pull away, if you can, from your responsibilities at work, even at home, unless you have young children, that doesn't work really well. Maybe you can get an hour or two, but it's hard, spend, and spend more of that time with God. Pull away from some of the, your responsibilities. Go a day without checking your work email if you can. Just do something to disengage mentally from, from the, just the everyday affairs of life and, and just spend that time, more of that time with God. Listen to a, listen to a sermon. Just don't just physically rest, but spiritually rest. Say, God, just fill me. Just I've only got a little bit of time. God, just fill me with your presence. Hey, Chick-fil-A does it. Chick-fil-A, don't they? Chick-fil-A does it. And um, they take one one day Now I don't have any numbers to prove this. I'm just guessing they do more in six days than most companies do in seven. And I just believe it's just God's blessing. It's God's favor on, on, um, on, on, on that business. I heard that for I don't know, I don't know what 80 something, maybe it was his 90th birthday, but the family of Truett Cathy. On his birthday, you know, what, what do you give Truett Cathy on his birthday, right? But his family said, for the rest of the time that the ownership of this company is in our, is, is under, is in our name, we will never be open on a Sunday. And they said he just sat there and cried because that was so important to him, to, to take one day off a week just to worship and honor God. It's amazing. Third, don't give up on your kingdom dream. Don't give up on your kingdom dream. Notice I said kingdom dream, not, not personal dream, not personal dream of millions of dollars or your team wins the national championship every year. I'm talking about a kingdom dream. You see, the Puritans had a kingdom dream. They wanted to purify the church. They wanted the gospel to be preached. They wanted communities to be transformed by God's power. They wanted to live godly lives, the men and women did. They wanted to draw people to Christ. Do you have a kingdom dream? I mean, just a big kingdom dream. And if you don't, maybe ask God for one. Say, God, would you, would you just give me a kingdom dream? Maybe it's for your neighborhood. Maybe it's, man, I want to share Christ with every person in my neighborhood. Or I want, I want this amount of coworkers to, I'll be able to give my testimony, share my testimony with them. Uh, or maybe it's to see a spiritual awakening in another country. Whatever that kingdom dream is, stay with it. Keep, keep it alive. Don't give up on it. Keep pursuing it, even when you think it'll never happen. Just keep keep it up. So be grateful for the English and American Puritans that they kept pursuing their kingdom dream. We are the recipients of their kingdom dream. We are Baptists and we are Protestants. And they made their way here to this country. Many of them did. And we are recipients of their kingdom dream. So, um, man, uh, I hope that's an encouragement to you. Let me pray for us. And then uh, if you guys have any thoughts or questions, we can... We can talk about that right at seven thirty, but we can we can um, we can do that. Let's pray.